Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Kevin Logan with us here this morning. First off, Kevin Logan, Chief U.S. Economist at HSBC. And let's start with the jobs report. We got those numbers on Friday, of course, much ballyhooed, and we treated them as such on Friday as they crossed uh, the Bloomberg. You've been picking through the numbers. What stood out to you, Kevin? <laughs> the first thing that stood out was the how little reaction there was in financial markets. I mean, I'll talk about the data in a moment, but when we get a good, solid report like that, you might think there'd be more of a reaction. But in fact, there was a, a modest move in the bond market. Uh, the dollar reacted, of course, by strengthening it a bit. But when we look at the charts, you'd look back one day and say, where was it? It didn't seem like it was the kind of market-moving event that uh, we've become accustomed to over the year. But most of the market-moving events have been political. As for the data itself, it simply showed that the economy is continuing to move along with a a steady pace of, of growth in employment, and likely a steady pace in the growth of, of GDP. A pickup from last year, though, that's important to recognize. Last year, the economy did really slow, and the unemployment rate barely changed. It went from 4.9 to 4.8 over the course of 2016. Now, this year, it's down to 4.3%. We're doing much better this year. Now, the, the total growth in jobs is about the same, but uh, we're reaching deeper into the labor market, and that's driving down the unemployment rate. What's very interesting about this, though, it hasn't really pushed up wages yet. I mean, the, the, we haven't seen that acceleration, which means that there's still some slack. There's still some room in the labor market for growth, in my opinion. We're just not seeing the kind of pressure that you expect when you're getting close to full employment. Uh, Kevin, there's a, there's a ritual to this, or there has been over these last few months. We get these job numbers, and there's the same uh, concern over why there hasn't been more wage growth. Uh, I imagine that you share that concern. What's, what's the path forward here? What's going to change that, do you think? Have we gotten any more insight into, into what could, uh, could cause wages to go up? Well, we do, we do have some insight, uh, particularly on the, the uh, structure of the labor market and its composition. What we're seeing is that more uh, lower-wage jobs are being, <clears throat> are being created. More people uh, are entering the labor force who, have, who are not college-educated. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, over the last few years, there's been all this talk about how uh, college-educated people were moving down the ladder in the labor force. They were taking jobs for which they were overqualified. Well, now the economy has progressed far enough that we're starting to see people being drawn in who are not college-educated, and they're getting the jobs. But uh, these are, tend to be somewhat lower-paying jobs in healthcare, leisure activities, restaurants, uh, uh, hospitality mm -hmm. and so on. Well, what that means is it tends to keep down the average. If you're creating a lot of jobs in what are relatively low productivity, low wage sectors of the economy, you're not going to see average wages go up very much. And that's really what's mm -hmm. happening. Uh, Kevin, I wonder if you could just, uh, good morning, by the way. I, I just wonder <laughs> if you could speak to the issue of uh, autos and housing, uh -huh. two key areas of the economy. We've been getting reports, particularly with the automobile sector. It's great if you look at it historically, but it is, as they say, it has peaked. Let's say it has plateaued. Peak, okay. <laughs> peak has an, a, a connotation that there's a downside. You know, you've hit the top and you're about to go down. It really seems like auto sales have plateaued. In fact, for the last 18 months or so, they've been sitting up at roughly the same level for some time. Now, it's at a very high level, so that's good for the auto sector. Around 16, 15 million, 17, about 16, somewhere? Close to 17, just below last year. And, and I got to break it. They're yeah. not automobiles. They're all 
you know, All pickup vehicles, trucks. Uh, well, they're pickup trucks, basically. <laughs> and and SUVs. And the crossover cars and the uh, SUVs, as you call them. Yes. And all of that together, running to just over 17 million, now down to about 16.8 or so. So it's still very high level historically. And if they can maintain this, it'll be a profitable industry, but one that's not growing very much. And when there's so much capacity in that industry globally, as well as here in the United States, that makes the competitive situation uh, very intense. So no inflation from the automobile industry. We have deflation in the automobile industry. The average the average price of a, a motor vehicle in the United States is slowly declining. Uh, it's down about a percent or so over the last year. So no, no inflation coming from that sector. In fact, the durable goods sector in general has experienced price declines for the last few years. Very gradual, very modest, but still no inflation coming from that sector. We've heard from some members of the of the FOMC that they are hesitant to raise rates in light of the fact that we haven't seen much movement in inflation. It's by no means the majority of that that committee, of course. But uh, as this persists, do they have more of a point? Uh, is is it worth waiting, or is maybe make the counter argument there? Is 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 it? worth not going ahead, I suppose, uh, based on what we've seen. Well, this is the dilemma that is always facing monetary policy. Yeah. Which mistake do you want to make? Do you want to be too tight when you shouldn't be, or do you want to be loose when you shouldn't be, and then pay the p- penalty later? And that's an argument that is always shifted. It's a committee. There's a variety of opinion. And right now, I think uh, there's a very valid argument that this is a new era that we're in. Uh, the inflation process has changed quite a lot. We can be patient. And wait, and why not foster and nurture the economy's growth with low interest rates? The counterargument is, well, there's some truth to that, but we can see from the past that when we get the unemployment rate down to this level and you look forward at a continuously growing economy, Mm -hmm. we'll soon have a three-handle on the unemployment rate by next year, early in 2018, and that is likely to lead to higher inflation, so we should move now gradually but move now. And that's the argument. They're swinging back and forth. Well, I think the, the gradualists are probably going to win out because I think Janet Yellen herself is in that camp. And small moves, I mean, we had a rate hike in June. The next one's probably coming in December. So that's a nice gap between the rate hikes. And then they'll watch the data again. And I only expect that next year we'll see one rate hike. We're not likely to get the three that are being projected by the uh, open market committee right now. They'll keep adjusting. Uh, I think your listeners are probably familiar with these dots that Uh they uh, project uh, how many times they'll, they'll hike the funds rate. Over the last few years, we've experienced this gradual downward move in the dots every year. They're high, and then they slowly come down. I think we're in for that for another year. Uh, we'll get very modest, perhaps one rate hike in December, one more next year. And that will balance these two arguments that you, you've uh, just pointed to. We have a conversation in the abstract about uh, who might be the next Fed chair and what he or she might do. So if we have Kevin Warsh or John Taylor, if there's a more rules-based approach to, to monetary policy, that could change things. Are you yet gaming out what that would look like if, if John Taylor, say, were to be running the Fed, how he might deal with the, with the, the low inflation that we've been seeing? Well... Of course, in the in Taylor rule, it's not just the, the inflation right. rate, which is low. There's also the unemployment rate, which is very low. And once you drop below the natural rate or the so-called NIRU, uh, the effect on the rule is, is quite dramatic. The, the unemployment rate has a bigger impact in that rule than does inflation. When you're close to your inflation rate, as we are now, 1.5% instead of 2 it only wants you to change the interest rate a little bit. But when you move away from what you think is full employment, then you're supposed to react a lot. So John Taylor would be looking to raise rates almost immediately. 
which, by the way, I don't think enhances his chances of being nominated for the for the position. Uh, we saw just recently that uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, indicated that he's a, a low interest rate guy, that he uh, uh, praised Janet Yellen for uh, following a policy of low rates and that and that's why Janet Yellen's name came back into the mix. But as long as the president is interested in fostering and promoting economic growth, I don't think he's going to look for a monetary hawk. David Gray and Pim Fox, Tom Keen off today here with Kevin Logan, the chief U.S. economist at HSBC. And we were chatting here just during the break about the Jackson Hole conference that's coming up here, the Kansas City Fed convening its annual confab uh, at the foot of the uh, the Grand Tetons out in, in Jackson. What's changed since last year? How's the, how's the contour of the conversation going to be different this time around? Well, the biggest change was that last year people were focused on Brexit and political changes. It had, the Brexit vote had just occurred at the end of June, and financial markets were in a little bit of turmoil, and there was a lot of uncertainty about the outlook for policy and what the impact would be on the global economy. There was a lot of fear at that time. Nonetheless, uh, Janet Yellen at that conference said that the case for, for tightening policy in the United States had strengthened. She told the world that they were still on course for tightening policy, that it would be gradual, of course, but that it was still necessary. And, of course, it would be data-dependent and so on. Uh, The surprise that came out of Jackson Hole was that there was no rate hike in September. So uh, there were mixed messages coming out of Jackson Hole last year. The case for U.S. uh, policy tightening was strengthening. The economy was doing a little bit better. Nonetheless, they held back. Uh, from tightening. I think this year things have changed. First of all, the focus of the Jackson Hole Symposium will be on the global economy, on the international economy. Last year it was on monetary policy specifically, wondering how the new tools would be used Mm. in the future. And the warning was that if there was a recession, the Fed would go back to quantitative easing and lowering the interest rate down to zero again. This year, I think those concerns are less, and there's uh, going to be an emphasis on the global economy and possibly on policy coordination. That leaves the United States on its own, in a sense. The Fed is on course to begin a disinvestment policy in uh, October. I think they will announce it in September. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to change because of what goes on at Jackson Hole. We're not going to get any warnings about uh, how the economy or policy is data dependent. No, I think they're going to move straight ahead. And then we'll see uh, what happens in December when potentially we'll get another rate hike. So for Janet Yellen, who's likely to give the opening address, we'll see if she'll continue to uh, put forward the idea the economy is doing well and that uh, the case for further gradual tightening of policy is still uh, still in play. Kevin, uh, do, uh, do interest rates follow the economy, or does the economy follow interest rates? Well, of course, they're, they're determined simultaneously. <laughs> uh, economic developments uh, lead to changes in financial markets. If we take Brexit last year, there was a sudden change in sentiment and attitude about global growth. And that led to a quick drop in interest rates. Now, the interest rates falling then offset the uh, anticipated slowdown in demand. So there's a simultaneous uh, determination and and interaction. Now, right now, what's interesting is that the U.S. economy is strengthening. Uh, We see that economic conditions this year are better than last year. Uh, Orders for capital equipment are up. Uh, The unemployment rate is lower. Uh, consumer confidence is very high. So it looks like we're still on a good course for growth, yet interest rates remain low. But I believe that the reason for that is global economic conditions. Inflation is low and remains low in the United States, not because of U.S. economic conditions, but because of global economic conditions. And so to answer your question about 
well, which is it? Is the economy driving interest rates or interest rates driving the economy? Right now, I think it's the global economy that's keeping inflation down and therefore driving the financial markets, keeping interest rates low. So in the case of, uh, to answer your question finally, that uh, it's the economy that is determining uh, the level of interest rates. And right now, low inflation means low interest rates. All right. So uh, my question then goes to protectionism and trade. If that's the case, efforts to wall off the United States economically, politically, and so on, what effect do you think they'll have? Well, first of all, I think it'll be piecemeal. So it's not going to have a great, uh, a very large effect. Uh, all countries have some protectionism to some degree. Uh, there's been, a, of course, a, a, a decades-long effort to, to lower barriers and to increase trade, and it's been very successful. And that's why we have a globally integrated economy now. I think that trade restrictions, are, as I said, are going to be piecemeal and small. So they, they shouldn't have a big effect. Uh, what's more important, though, is the fact that Right now, there's uh, excess supply throughout the world. By excess supply, I mean there's ample supply. The economy, the global economy has grown so much, has moved forward so quickly through technological changes and through uh, the integration of economies, Mm -hmm. that that's what's keeping inflation down and it's what's keeping growth in the United States limited. Protectionism is not going to change that. Protectionism is not going to change the uh, global uh, supply. Kevin Logan, appreciate uh, all the time this morning on TV uh, and radio. Kevin Logan, the chief U.S. economist at HSBC, joining me and Pim Fox this morning. Tom Keene has this August Monday off. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio in New York, coast to coast and worldwide. Deborah Lair had a distinguished career in the corporate sector before joining the, administ- the, the White House as a staffer and then going on to the Paulson Institute uh, with uh, Hank Paulson, former Treasury Secretary. She's now a senior fellow at the Paulson Institute. Joins us now from our bureau in Washington, D.C. Great to speak with you uh, this morning. And um, I'll begin, if I could, just by asking you about the, the quality of conversation here between the U.S. Uh, and China. We've seen the barbs the president has thrown uh, on Twitter. Where, how do you assess the relationship now, the political relationship between uh, this country and China? Certainly, uh, when the administration took office, there was great concern about how difficult the relationship was going to be, just given the commentary during the campaign. But the Mar-a-Lago summit and the emphasis that President Trump places on personal relationships allowed him to create, I think, quite a good relationship with President Xi. So at the top, at least, there's a personal relationship. But consistently, we hear from the administration that they describe the relationship right now as tense. Mm. And there's a lot of concern about China's willingness and ability to take action on North Korea. The action this weekend hopefully has let off some of that steam. Certainly China's support for the new sanctions is critically important. And hopefully we'll start to see China taking other actions in terms of increasing some of the pressure and stopping some of its trade with that regime. Deborah Lear, there's there's a sense of urgency here. Uh, catalyzed in part by these uh, intercontinental ballistic missile tests uh, that, um, that that North Korea is behind. But I wonder if you could speak to just the issue of time uh, diplomatically with regard to the relationship between the U.S. and China. There was, as you mentioned, that meeting between the two leaders in Florida just a few months uh, ago. And then shortly thereafter, just a couple of months thereafter, there was a president of the United States expressing some dissatisfaction with how far things had moved along in a pretty narrow uh, time frame. Uh, how, how radical, how different are those expectations from reality, do you think? 
Well, diplomatically, as you say, the relations and discussions are going on with the Chinese on a very consistent basis. From Secretary Tillerson to a number of the officials in the White House, Tina Powell has been the Deputy National Security Advisor as a point person for North Korea and is in regular touch with the Chinese, pushing for additional movement on North Korea. But definitely there is a timing issue as we see North Korea continuing to fire missiles. It's increasingly important for the U.S. to move forward in taking action. And if we're not able to convince China to move with us, it's important that we find other ways to try and bring about pressure. I mean, this is an issue. These discussions have been going on for many, many years. Uh, But it's important that we start to see some real um, steps forward. Any any chance of a rethink on U.S. policy as regards a unified uh, Korean peninsula? You know, I think there has to be some very creative thinking about how to bring the best solution for uh, stopping this regime from firing its missiles. Okay, but I mean, there, it is state, isn't it stated U.S. policy that you know the North and the South really are just one, and that the peninsula should be one Korea? That was the at least the U.S. official position. Yes, but I think it's is they continue to have discussions in the big picture, for example, with China. Certainly, we agree on what the end goal is in terms of a denuclearization of North Korea. But in how that actually takes place, China certainly has concerns about a South Korea, U.S. troops on its border. And that's where some of the issues are going to get very difficult with China and what this final deal actually looks like. I uh wonder what more China could be doing. We saw the new sanctions imposed over the weekend, the U.S. clearly looking at China to do more. What are the deficits as you see them? What has China not been doing? And, and uh, when the U.S., when the administration talks about China taking more of a leadership role here, what more indeed could China be doing? That's really an excellent question. For one of the biggest challenges in China today, and I think this is this is much bigger than North Korea, it's one of the challenges President Xi is really trying to get his hands around. And it's, while he can reach down into the system on any given day, he can shut down a factory, he can stop a bank, he can arrest someone, he has a, a very difficult time implementing policy on a consistent basis. If there are local officials who are determined to implement something that's different from what Beijing is asking, it takes a very long time and there's little retribution for that action. And so not only do they have to stop any consistent trade going on with North Korea, but they have to also stop the unofficial trade and also looking at how trade is being conducted, maybe not just directly out of China, but through third parties through third countries. Deborah, let me ask you about what we've heard from this administration so far about North Korea. They've used the phrase strategic patience. That's what they've said was the the policy in place before they took over the White House. Was that not working, as they've said? In other words, had the the U.S. government been too patient with North Korea amidst all of the, the testing that we'd seen previously? Yeah, it's it, these are very, very complicated yeah. issues to try and address. And there is limited leverage in many ways that we have with this new regime. In the past, the uh, six-party talks were able to make some progress. We were able to trade visits by, whether it was heads of state or by secretaries of state, to make some progress. But those old tactics don't seem to be working any longer. And so it's time to be thinking creatively about new tactics. 
can you speak to the issue of how the Chinese and other members of the ASEAN uh, Council, how they view the U.S. State Department and Rex Tillerson now? I mean, they read the same papers, they get the same reports that we get about the, uh, the U.S. administration, and I'm sure they also follow Twitter. Yeah, I don't think I can speak uh, for what's in the minds of the Chinese and the other countries in terms of their opinions of Rex Tillerson. Certainly, uh, it's just important, and there's no question that many of the countries in that region want the United States to remain engaged and very actively engaged in the region. Does that include making sure that China does not expand its building of islands or even uh, adding, you know, its own Navy ports uh, around the world? One was just opened in Africa. Yeah, uh, and those are very important issues. Certainly, there are a number of countries in the regions who have different views on China's actions, who view it as essential that the United States remain a major presence in the region. Uh, Japan, Australia, some of the smaller countries who are fighting on the South China Sea issue, no question at all. I want to come back and talk uh, trade with you in just a little bit. But before we get there, uh, let me ask you about the, the recent dialogue that we had in Washington, uh, D.C. I know that you were instrumental in pushing for the, the creation of what came to be known as the U.S. Strategic and Economic Dialogue, this annual uh, meeting of Chinese leaders and U.S. leaders alternating between Washington and, and, and Beijing. And it was a, you know, a bifurcated thing, as, as the name implies. There was a strategic side and an economic Side. This meeting in Washington uh, seemed squarely focused on, on the economy, and we didn't get a statement of a path forward uh, on the heels of, of that meeting uh, in Washington. What do you make of just the quality of the, the, the official channels? How big a, a loss is it not to have that um, dual-focused, regular meeting between these two countries? Well, just to clarify, I yeah. was involved in the creation of the first dialogue the predecessor, under Secretary yeah, Paulson, yeah. which was the strategic economic dialogue. And I do think that it lost its way in some part, while the intentions were good in combining the strategic side, the whole rationale in creating it as just an economic-focused dialogue was to help create the priorities with the U.S. government so that we were clear in our requests with the Chinese in terms of what we were looking for. And it fit within the decision-making process on the economic side for the Chinese. When the strategic side was combined with it, and, and previous in the Bush administration, they had been on separate tracks. So it wasn't taking away at all in, from a strategic dialogue. Just the Obama administration made a, an agreement combined to combine them. them. Yeah. You often had trade issues like climate change that Secretary Kerry was leading being discussed with foreign policy people on the Chinese side who really didn't have any authority over that. And in the end, it became a very cumbersome agreement um, uh, discussion. I think it's very important that this administration has gone back to just a focus mm -hmm. on the economic side. And it's, um, I think, a very good thing, the strategic dialogue they created between the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State mm -hmm. focuses on the right issues, and they're able to get the right side of the system in China to the table to make decisions who have authority yeah. over those issues there. And we are speaking with um, Deborah Lair, senior fellow. Paulson. Oh, Paulson Institute. Uh, she joins us uh, from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. And uh, just to put it into context, uh, one of 
Deborah's previous job, she serves as in the U.S. government, executive office of the president as deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for China. And our topic is China and Asia. Uh, Deborah, of course, uh, I'm sure you heard the news. North Korea uh, today threatening to use nuclear weapons against the United States if provoked. Uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson says negotiations, but only if the North Koreans stop testing these weapons. Uh, Do you believe that's really going to (laughs) happen? Well, it's very hard to predict anything that the uh, North Korean leader is going to do. But I think it's very important, obviously, that the administration continue to use all means possible to try and bring his actions under some kind of discipline. Well, based on your, your experience with uh, Chinese leaders, what, what is it do you believe that they could do that they're not doing in order to assist uh, the United States and indeed the Koreans uh, to try to disarm this, uh, this potential threat? Yeah, it's very interesting, the relationship that the Chinese have with this leader versus um, his father and grandfather. Uh, They actually were much closer to the two predecessors who were frequent visitors to China. This leader has not actually visited China since he took office. And there, there is a lot that the Chinese can be doing. They, we've seen that trade over the last few months has gone up by 10% with North Korea. This is supposedly non-sanction-related trade, but those are other areas that could be shut down. The Chinese are responsible for 90% of the trade with North Korea, and so there is a significant amount that they can be doing to try and put additional pressure and bring about some kind of change in North Korea's actions. Help us, if you would, distill the U.S.'s message on trade with China. We had a report last week that the U.S. is considering a new investigation into intellectual property issues with China. That's on top of an ongoing investigation into steel production, other metals production. And, of course, there is the the project that Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, is spearheading looking at the bilateral trade relationships between Chinese and U.S. companies. I I wonder if you're able to discern what the the administration's trade strategy is at this point, especially when it comes to U.S.-China trade. The administration appears to be very focused on trying to, what they say is, rebalance the relationship and address the issues of somewhat related to reciprocity. Chinese access to the U.S. market versus U.S. access in China's market. In China, you know, we haven't had a major trade agreement with the Chinese since they joined the World Trade Organization, which was over 15 years ago. And in that time, while we've seen certainly a lot of reform in China's economy and it's continued to grow and strengthen, we haven't seen a lot of market opening, particularly for U.S. companies. And we've seen a lot of changes in a number of their practices and how they're treating our companies versus domestic companies and how policies and approvals and various things like that are being applied for companies in China. Now, that said, American companies still have a very strong presence there. They're still making a significant amount of money in those markets, and they're very dependent on China given its growth plan. What the administration seems to be very focused on is how to continue to push for market opening so that we can continue to export to China. But we also should be focused on the areas where the U.S. is most competitive and continuing to push for market opening for services, 
which is where the U.S. is one of the the world's leaders, and we see a great growth in the Chinese service market and opportunities there, and also pushing for protection of intellectual property、mm-hmm. rights. Deborah, I've had occasion to talk with、uh, Michael Froman, the former U.S. Trade Representative, a number of times, and he will frequently push back on this argument that the U.S. could be doing more to、uh, pursue complaints or cases against China under the the WTO. Uh, rules. When when you look at it, when you look at what this past administration did, the administration previous to that one did、uh, as well. Do you see that、uh, they could have done more? I guess hindsight is twenty twenty, but、uh, could more be done here when it comes to to complaining to the WTO? Hindsight's twenty twenty, and the WTO certainly has his role, its role.、Uh, the reason that we pushed so hard, and as you said, I was one of the negotiators、yeah. here. We pushed so hard to bring China into a rules based organization. Then the key became focusing on enforcement of the commitments that they had made. And the Obama administration did take a number of trade cases to the WTO, but those are a very lengthy process. And one of the things that we did not see in the last administration until the very end was any kind of bilateral negotiation with the Chinese. What the administration chose to do, and it was a high-risk gambit. Was to negotiate with the countries around China in creating the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. In the end, obviously, they couldn't deliver on the final agreement,、mm-hmm. and this administration chose not to pursue it. The same with the bilateral investment treaty. They started negotiating that with China, and that would have, if concluded, resulted in additional market access for、mm-hmm. our companies, additional investment protections. But in the end, they couldn't finish the agreement.、Yeah. Deborah, great to speak with you this morning. Thank you very much for being so generous、uh, with your time. Deborah Lair, there of the Paulson Institute in Washington D.C., joining us to talk about、uh, U.S.-China relationships on this Monday morning. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura with Pim Box today. Tom Keen has the day off. This is Bloomberg. As I mentioned, Adam Posen joins us now. He's the president of the,、uh, the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Great to have us with our, him with us from our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington D.C. Adam, great to speak with you once again. And I, I wonder if we could pick up from the job numbers that we got last week, how the Fed、uh, might be processing them.、Uh, we had a conversation on surveillance on television today,、right. in which we looked at the unemployment numbers juxtaposed with、uh, the inflation read, and of course, that's the pickle that the Fed、uh, is in right now, trying to find its way out of this low inflation environment, as the jobs numbers seem to be. Coming in pretty、uh, decent. How do you see the the path forward looking? Well, David, thanks for having me back on surveillance. I think the Fed is in what I would call normal difficulties.、Uh-huh. Right, we're so used to this long period of having really momentous Fed decisions, and then a period where there were no Fed decisions,、uh, or rather, a decision not to move. And now we're into. Frankly, what's the kind of difficulty you have in a normal economy? Is how do you balance the growth and the, or rather, the employment inflation objectives? I mean, I think the way to look at it is, unlike in some recent years, there's very decent arguments on both sides. My view is that the, it's not so much that I think there's not going to be any inflation. But the risks of inflation taking off in some huge way are nil, and so when you have these confusing labor market numbers that unemployment keeps dropping, which says okay we're reaching the limit, versus product,、uh, participation goes up, which says there's still room to go, you don't need to sweat it that much. Frankly, I, I'd rather they just hold off. 
how much uh, introspection? How much uh, uh, introspection is there right now in monetary policy? We had the Sintra moment a few weeks back mm-hmm. at this ECB forum. We're looking ahead to the uh, the Confab in Jackson Hole in just a, a, a few weeks. There was a conversation about coordination, increased coordination uh, in Portugal. Do you expect that conversation to continue in Jackson Hole? Well, I'll, I'm fortunate, thanks to Esther George and the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, to get to attend again this year. <laughs> you and, and me both. Yeah, no, both. it's it's a great privilege because they've tightened up those standards. Um, but I, I don't think coordination is really the issue right now. I, I think it's much more about coming to a common understanding that we have this low inflation environment across the world that Japan, as I and many others have been pointing out the last few years, has done pretty much everything the textbook, people like me and much more distinguished people like Ben Bernanke have been saying, and they still don't have inflation. U.S., we have everything that looks like a mediocre but real recovery, still no inflation. So it's less about coordination and more about figuring out what's really going on. Uh, Adam Posen, you've been quoted as saying it's reached the point where the only decision is how freaked out you want to be by how much this contradicts previous knowledge or previous theory. Uh, where does that leave people to, for their next step? I mean, if, if that was going to be sort of emblazoned on a banner when everyone arrives at Jackson Hole. Well, to be fair to the Jackson Hole programmers, they actually essentially made that the banner last year. They were a little ahead of the curve, not quite as pithily as you quote me saying. But remember, they had a paper last year by John Faust, I believe it was, talking about how little we know on inflation predictions. And a lot of the stuff on the program last year was about that. I mean, who cares about the program, but just as a marker of where things are. I think there is legitimate reason to be freaked out intellectually that the straightforward Phillips curve model, but also a lot of the underlying things for inflation targeting about forward-looking expectations, central bank credibility, um, uh, the the uh, difficulty of anchoring expectations turns out to be wrong. Now, in practical terms, they're wrong in the sense that they're much more sticky than we thought they were, um, that inflation is far less likely to spike up than we thought they were. So in a sense, where people are is uh, you can still use economics for basic engineering purposes, even if you can't use it for real physics understanding. Uh, Adam, let me ask you, just shifting gears here a little bit about what the Congress faces when uh, when members of the House and Senate get back to Washington uh, in September after this month-long uh, recess. It is a, a pretty heavy agenda item of things that the Congress has to do, including raising the debt ceiling uh, and uh, hashing out something when it comes to, to funding. Who's going to be the, the leading light here when it comes to, to raising the debt ceiling? Who are you listening to or who do you think is going to be guiding the way here? Is, is the administration speaking with any kind of unified voice when it comes to the need to raise the debt ceiling? Well, if one follows day to day, David. It certainly looks like they're finally converging on saying they want a clean bill to raise the debt ceiling. I think Secretary Mnuchin and, to some degree, uh, NEC Chair Cohn have been very clear on that. My understanding from Bloomberg reporting was, I think, last week Mick Mulvaney, the OMB director, came on board on that. So that's really everybody from the administration. The question is party discipline. Can the House control the so-called Freedom Caucus people, the extreme right-wingers? Um, and I, I hope they can because it, even if you used to believe in what they thought, um, it's clear from the last five years that if you create a crisis over the debt ceiling, you don't change the fundamental path of the budget. Uh, so I'd suggest they just get that vote done and then move on to the real debate, which is about tax reform. 
And the, the Treasury Department here is saying that the uh, government funding will run out, sort of, or will hit that debt ceiling, it sounds like, in, in early uh, October. Great to speak with Adam Posen once again, the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, joining us uh, from our 991 studios in Washington, D.C. this morning. Great to speak with him, uh, as always, here on Bloomberg Surveillance with David Gura and Pim Fox this morning. Tom Keene uh, is off. And uh, I just want can I just interject ahead. one thing, interject David, away. Um, just because a news item that uh, I've always been watching, it, Tesla. Uh-huh. Tesla is going to sell, uh, planning to sell one and a half billion dollars of bonds in order to support that Model 3 uh, release. They burned through about that much, I think, in the first uh, quarter, building that Model 3. Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio in New York, coast to coast and worldwide. You got up, what I like, before uh, yeah. before the birds started chirping. Yes, the yeah. bars were still full as I made my way here. Ouch. It's New right. York City, though, doesn't say much. But well, <laughs> well, we'll give you some some crackers or something. Very well, good. you know, and that leads me to Mondelez, because yes. we're going to be talking right now about uh, Irene Rosenfeld, uh, current uh, chief executive of Mondelez. And, uh, well, we want to know what's next, because she's exiting uh, the company. And here to help us understand this is Alexia Howard of Sanford Bernstein. She is an expert on all things having to do with the packaged food industry, and she joins us on our phone lines. Alexia Howard, good morning. Thank you for being with us. Tell us a little bit about uh, Mondelez and what kind of company uh, Irene Rosenfeld is leaving. Very good question and good morning as well. So Mondelez uh, obviously was created during the the breakup of Kraft Foods uh, in 2012. It's basically the snacking business from there. So if you think of the old Nabisco company, uh, that's a big piece of it. Uh, Kraft bought Cadbury back in 2010, which is a lot of product overseas, the old Cadbury's dairy milk brand uh, everywhere around the world. And here in the U.S., they have Trident gum. Uh, they have, uh, obviously, all the Oreo crackers and, and that kind of thing. And Irene has been trying to build this up into a global snacking powerhouse uh, for the last five years. She's been CEO of the craft company. Uh, She began that uh, role in 2006. And so she's really been at the job a little over 10 years now. And uh, obviously, we heard uh, just recently that she's planning to step down in November. So what kind of company does she leave it? Is it, I mean, is this, would it have been better to keep Kraft and uh, the snack, this uh, snack business together? I mean, because uh, the, uh, the plan was, you know, to get this company really charging, you know, and firing. But has that really worked out? Stocks down the, this the, year. The plan, the plan originally was to get the top line going because the snacks piece of the business was always the faster growing piece of the business when it was the piece of craft, when the two pieces were together. Um, unfortunately, uh, they've had a lot of issues in emerging markets uh, over the last five years or so. Some executional issues at the beginning and then obviously the macroeconomic slowdown in places like Brazil and China uh, and even India, uh, that caught them a little bit unawares. Um, and so the top line has definitely been disappointing to investors. On the other hand, Nelson Pelt, the activist investor, got involved. He actually joined the board in January of 2014, and he started to push very hard for the company to look at uh, margin expansion. Um, back in 2012, 
when they started pushing for margin expansion more explicitly, um, the underlying margins were down at about 10%. Now they're getting close to 17%. So that's a pretty big move over the last three or four years. Uh, so they've really been addressing the cost base. They've been uh, addressing the number of products that they sell around the world, the number of suppliers they have, really trying to streamline and simplify the organization. And they've driven nice underlying earnings growth. So the margin story, the profit progress has actually been pretty good. But I definitely agree that the uh, the top line has been pretty lackluster all around. You mentioned the difficulties this company has faced in, uh, faced in some emerging markets. Could you just enumerate some of them for, for a company of this scale trying to do business in so many places? What are the, the principal difficulties? So I think in China was probably the one that captured most people's attention. They did a phenomenal job. Um, between 2007 and 2012 or so, uh, with driving the Oreo cookies brand from about $30 million in sales up to about $600 million in sales in the space of a few few years there. And then it all stalled. And I think a lot of that was um, the slowdown in, in the economy over in China. That certainly hit them hard. But they also had problems with distribution. Um, they ha- ha- So they definitely had some execution issues as well uh, at the start. More recently, because of the slowdown, they've lost to some of the more local brands. Uh, and I think they may have, uh, have maybe pushed too hard on the innovation. It was hard to keep it up uh, for a time. Uh, in Brazil, it's also been a macroeconomic roller coaster down there for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, they Again, they also had some distribution issues uh, right at the outset, just as the split was happening from Kraft Foods. Uh, in Russia, they took uh, a bit too much pricing. Um, also back in 2013 or so, just as coffee prices were coming down, um, they had some problems with pricing over there. The good news was that most of those issues were addressed very quickly. In India, uh, they had a high-quality problem where um, the business was growing so rapidly that they ran out of capacity for a short period. Um, but once the new plant got up and running again, um, that business seems to have done fairly well. So what are the, what are the most pressing yeah. issues that the, that the company needs to address? Um, I think at this stage, it really is all about the top line. They've demonstrated this good track record of margin expansion and earnings growth, and they still have, I believe, a few years of that to play out. They've been opening new manufacturing plants around the world and really addressing the cost base. But the problem is the top line, that uh, it's been stuck in this very, very low single-digit territory for really most of the last five years, and they've got to fix the... uh, um, their ability, I guess, to uh, to innovate, to drive innovation around the globe, um, get the promotional uh, activity really locked up tight, get the marketing sorted out as so well. Then, so then, Alexia, so then why are, why are they focused on cutting costs now? I mean, that's not going to drive um, the top line. Well, it's been phases. So uh, I think that it was the right call back in 2013 to pivot to... Uh, margin expansion, because that was obviously the low-hanging fruit. I think perhaps in this uh, transition that we're like we're, we're going to see later in the year, um, that might be a signal that the company is ready to actually refocus on the top line. Let me ask you just about this uh, this transition. Uh, Ms. Rosenfeld is going to stay on, on in, a, in a board capacity, I gather, but uh, the company here has gone outside. It's not picked an internal candidate, and you'd imagine that there probably was at least one or two uh, from within the company's mm-hmm. ranks that could have gone that could have gone to. Uh, do you have any hesitation? Do you have any worry about the, the fact that they've gone outside? Um, I think it's always uh, a little bit of an eye opener when yeah. when companies go outside. I think you, that has to be um, has to be acknowledged, and it's it, it's not all that common for you know normally um, promotes from within seem to be more the uh, 
uh, what I've seen over the last 10 or 11 years covering the space. Mm. Um, so, yes, going, going to the outside, going to a, a CEO that has a good track record at McCain uh, for driving top-line growth and bottom-line bottom, bottom line growth. I think Irene's comment was he can walk and chew gum. Yeah. Um, that was, that was uh, it, I mean, it's an interesting choice because obviously McCain is private. Um, he, um, uh, Mr. Va- Dirk van der Poot uh, obviously has a lot of experience at Danone and Coca-Cola, so other publicly traded CPG companies, but not in the CEO role. So he hasn't run a publicly traded company uh, yet. Aside from that principal difference, the public-private difference, how is how is McCain different from Mondelez? Well, obviously, it's a very um, it's a much more focused product line, um, basically uh, in the uh, in the frozen potatoes business, and a lot of the uh, the, the quick service restaurants uh, will be their primary customers. So it is a much simpler business. As I say, he clearly has a good track record. Um, they were very keen to point out on the original. Um, uh, call when this was discussed that he's managed to grow revenues by 50% uh, in the last uh, six years that he's been running the business and three quarters of that has been organic organic growth, which is impressive, but definitely a much more focused company um, um, uh, in terms of product lines than obviously the much more complicated Mondelez business. We'll come back in just a moment here, but what do you make of the timing of this uh, this announcement? Um, it's interesting. I mean, it, maybe not that surprising given uh, that Irene has, uh, that, that uh, Ms. Rosenfeld has been there for longer than 10 years. It might be just time for her to, to think about moving on. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of discussion about consolidation in the space. And so people, the biggest um, conversations that the morning that this was all announced, uh, the questions were around, well, what does this mean for, for a deal? Because Mondelez has obviously been one of the uh, possible candidates uh, as the next target for Kraft Heinz. So people are, are definitely noodling on that. I flip through your notes here, Alexia, and I, I love the passage here on an interesting love triangle that's developed between Mondelez, Kraft Heinz, and PepsiCo, uh, whereby, as you write, a sizable deal could emerge between any two of these companies over the coming months. How, how ripe is the environment here for a merger? And, and uh, walk us through what's likely to happen when it comes to mergers and acquisitions uh, in this food space. Sure. So um, the U.S. packaged food sector is still the most fragmented staple sector in the developed world. If you think about beverages or household products, um, they're all a lot more concentrated. So you've got a lot of fairly small companies in here. Um, Clearly, Kraft Heinz, uh, I guess, um, with 3G uh, um, in the background there, um, they've been looking to do another deal. Their last move was buying Kraft in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're about two years on from that deal. They've sucked a lot of the meat off the bones, and they clearly are looking for another another move, uh, judging by the bid earlier this year for Unilever, which obviously didn't work out. Uh, so the question has become, who else might they go after? And frankly, a lot of the heavily processed packaged food companies that are very U.S.-centric, like General Mills or Kellogg, uh, they're having such a hard time in the U.S. market right now that I think it's much less likely uh, that they would be candidates for, for Kraft Heinz because there's so much uncertainty. Whereas a company like a Mondelez that has a lot more exposure in international markets, or even a Pepsi, uh, which is the, the sort of three parts of my love triangle here, yeah. Um, they they would seem to be sort of more obvious candidates because they've got very strong brands. They've got a lot of exposure to emerging markets. Uh, that's the kind of direction that I think Kraft Heinz needs to take at this point. Now, it's interesting between these three companies because um, – 
back in 2012 or so when Nelson Peltz was putting together his white paper on Pepsi, he was talking about uh, possibly trying to get uh, Pepsi to make a bid for Mondelez back then. Um, so clearly now with him on the Mondelez board, there has been a question mark about whether Mondelez might want to make a move on Frito-Lay, uh, which is obviously a big, big chunk of Pepsi uh, as a company. So, um, Yes, it's not clear whether any deal will happen. Clearly, none of the companies have commented publicly on any such deal. But you could imagine a situation where two of those three companies might see something fairly sizable happening. Now, obviously, the change of leadership at Mondelez has left everybody's head scratching. The fact that the stock price didn't move very much that day and there was very low volume, I think people have all kind of concluded it's a damp squib. If we're going to pass the baton uh, to somebody else, then maybe that means that a deal isn't in the offing. Um, so that's clearly where the investors have, have landed. Mm. Uh, I would say it's going to be a wait-and-see situation. Uh, stranger things have happened. You know, I, um, I'm, I'm curious here just if, if you could help us assess the role that Nelson Peltz has played, the role of activist investment. What have we learned about activist investment here from, from what we've seen with Mr. Peltz and, and, and with Mondelez? Well, I would say there's a lot of activist investors that have been involved uh, over the space, particularly in recent years. If you think about JAMA Partners being involved course, with yeah. uh, ConAgra, and uh, uh, obviously we have Engaged Capital now involved with, with Hain Celestial. Um, so, yeah, Mr. Peltz has, was back in the day involved with Heinz uh, back in 2006, uh, and then he stayed on for a, another few years involved over there. He's been involved with, um, uh, with uh, Kraft and now Mondelez much more actively since he took a board seat uh, in January of 2014. Um, obviously hard to tell exactly what his influence has been behind the scenes. Uh, he doesn't comment publicly on that, but we have seen a lot of leadership changes at, uh, below Irene Rosenfeld uh, at Mondelez since he's been in place. Um, so, so, yes, I mean, I think he has a, long, uh, a long-term um, sort of vision for the company. He, he's not one of those people that gets in and gets out super quickly. Um, but also, I think he, he probably does uh, keep the management team on their toes. And uh, who knows when it comes to deal-making what, what his angle might be. Alexia, last question here just about the most recent round of, of earnings. There was mention of a, of a cyber attack, the degree to which the company is dealing uh, with that. I had a chance to sit down with Sir Martin Sorrell a few weeks back. Of course, WPP was wrapped up in uh, an attack of its own and is going through all those pieces. He talked about the, the difficulties of, of doing that. How heavily does that weigh on, on Mondelez, just finding its way uh, out of that hack? that it was it was disclosed you know as soon as they knew that it was um, material enough to, to have an impact on the earnings cycle this time around um, but they are saying it might have a little bit of a bearing on the third quarter earnings but they reiterated their guidance for the full year on both the top and the bottom line so uh, I think from an investor standpoint it was a, a one-time um, uh, unfortunate incident mm. and people are willing to look through it. Lastly here, I just uh, we got about 30 seconds left. How are you going to assess the, uh, the, the efficacy of, the job performance of this, this new CEO? What are the metrics you're going to be looking at? Well, clearly the, the um, top line is going to yeah. be the, the thing that everybody's going to be looking at. So organic sales growth and his plans for innovation and marketing and driving the top line. Also, we want to know that he's not going to drop the ball on the margins. And the big question on investors' minds uh, is, will he have to rebase earnings? I don't think so, uh, given that the company's in good shape. But an incoming CEO from the outside, you never know. Great to speak with you this morning. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time. That's Alexia Howard. She's an analyst with Sanford Bernstein talking with us about the future of Mondelez, one of the food companies that she covers there at Sanford Bernstein.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.